0: If you have attended any of our meetings up until this point, you know that we are starting a new series in Hosea that I have named The Prophet and the Prostitute, or How I Came to Love the American Church again. As I was studying up on reading Hosea, I felt really moved by God's redeeming love for Gomer, for Hosea, for Israel, and for the American Church, and also for me. Of course, well, naming the series, I definitely had the meme from Blades of Glory stuck in my head. What does that even mean? No one knows what it means. It's provocative. It gets the people going. And perhaps I have become a meme unto myself. So... We will start our story, rightfully so, in the beginning. Hosea is chilling, living his best life as a prophet, and God speaks to him. The language the Hebrew uses here is actually the same as the Genesis story. It's a bit of poetry waxing, but it's also to set up how serious this story is. When God calls, God is starting a story, and it's best to listen. This is not your traditional love story, though. But it's a story worth listening to. And what a way to start a story at that. Hosea, I know you've been a great guy, and you're going to meet a woman. And she's not any woman, a woman of whoredom. Yes, and then you will have children of whoredom in the land of whoredom. That's a lot of whoredom. Now, you might ask yourself, why all this whoredom? Why all this uh, promiscuity? Why all this harsh language? Well, there are multiple ways to interpret this. Now, I'm going to start chatting through a few of them. Uh, First is a very obvious way that Gomer was a whore. Now, there are multiple different types of whore during this time because there were multiple different ways to be a whore. I, I'm going to stop saying whore now. Uh, okay, what, one type was a temple prostitute. See, they would work at a temple and you would pay them to worship their different gods by having sex with them. Because the giving of pleasure and fertility was a mysterious act and kind of viewed as a way of worship. And then there was also your regular, well, run-of-the-mill prostitute the ones that we are kind of familiar when we hear the word with today. Now, when we speak of gomer, it's kind of hard to know which type she was. Some interpretations place her as a temple prostitute to make it more of a poetic for the obvious allegory of Israel and their own worshiping and knowing other gods. Actually, I'm sure you've heard it before, but the Hebrew word for knowing can be uh, more intimate in nature Not necessarily always sexual, but very intimate. To be known can be a very intimate act, an almost naked intimacy. And thus, if Gomer was a temple prostitute, she would have both been known by both the personal and the divine. And if she was just a regular prostitute, well, then she would have been doing so to seek economic stability for herself, which means that it's not the kind of life that she probably wanted. And it was what she was doing what she could to provide for herself, of which Hosea, for having to take her on as a wife, would have been a major shift and change for her. I think it's also another important thing to note is that some scholars believe that the Hebrew language implies that Gomer might not have actually been a prostitute when Hosea marries her. That God had this kind of foreknowledge that she would eventually become a whore and do these things. But God is telling Hosea to marry her anyways. There are some theological implications in this interpretation that I wanted to talk through. If God had the foreknowledge that Gomer was going to eventually turn to this lifestyle and yet told Hosea to marry her anyways, well, it shows both that God sometimes places things in our path that may cause us difficulty and also shows us that God will love us the same knowing everything that we are going to be going through. And that's an important thing for us to hear, that God will love us regardless of where we have been and what we have known. And when I say known, I'm using that biblical sense, what we have known intimately, in our heart, in our mind, in our soul. God has loved us with that foreknowledge, with whatever we may know, know, and will know. God's love for us goes way beyond, and God is reaching down through Hosea to tell us a specific story of this love. Now, the obvious connection of this interpretation is that there is a relationship between Gomer and Israel. And this is an analogy that we can actually kind of zoom out from. If God told Hosea to marry Gomer, despite knowing the difficulties of the relationship that are in front of it, well, then perhaps God loves Israel, despite knowing the difficulties of the relationship that are going to happen. And well, then we can zoom out even further, saying that maybe God loves me, knowing the difficulties of that relationship that are to come out of it. And God maybe loves the church, Knowing that the difficulties that are come out of that relationship, and maybe God loves humanity, all of us, even knowing the difficulties that are to come out of that relationship, God's love surely has gone before us, before we even knew it, even in the midst of our dishonesty. God's love for us was there, and I want to take a quick second to be a bit of a Debbie Donner, but also a Rhonda Realist. I was very proud of myself for making that name. There has been a problem inside of the American church where we tell spouses, mostly women, to stay in abusive relationships because we cite how God loves us in spite of our failures and our problems. This is a manipulation of understanding of God's love. God does not desire for us to stay in toxic relationships that are a harm to ourselves or harm to others. That is not what God's plan is. We are taking a story, like Hosea, with all of its different variables, and imposing it into a contemporary position uh, while ignoring that this is a story of the divine, that being God, loving us. Yes, we are called to mimic God's love for, uh, for us towards each other, but our love is always limited to our finite experience, while God's love is infinite. Meaning, God's love is always pointed towards divine justice that may, sp- uh, may span over our limited time here on earth. While our interpretations of love, or what could be love, is finite and limited. I'm going to say that again because I think it's a very important perspective to have on this situation that God's love is infinite, which means it's going to be able to span time in our own limited experience. And it always is pointed towards that divine justice. While our interpretations of love are always going to be limited because we are finite, we are bound by Time in our own experience. God's love goes beyond our own limitation and understanding. But that does not mean we get to decide how we will quote enact God's love, end quote. I feel really weird having to say that, but since this is an audio sermon and I you can't see me doing the air quotes. I don't know how else to put that, tell you that I'm putting quotes around enacting God's love. Because I do think that was, uh, something that we do is we, quote, enact God's love, unquote, in ways that are, are limited because they're based off our view of justice or our limited, finite time. So uh, this will be the first time, but this is actually going to be a reoccurring theme in this sermon series. I want to say I'm sorry on behalf of the American Church, if you <clears throat> or someone you know or someone you love was told to stay in an abusive and toxic relationship because quote that was God's plan unquote, or that God, uh, or that God told you to love your abuser because we we're all quote fall flawed fallen sinners end quote. We have taken blanket statements and ignored the individual different dynamics that exist in every single relationship. We have taken a blanket interpretation and lost the forest for the trees. We took God's infinite love and interpreted it towards a finite limited situation. I ask for your forgiveness of the American church for any pain that it may have caused you, someone you know, or someone you love. Okay, I want to take a deep breath. That was heavy, but what is life without these heavy moments? We as a church are called to engage in these things, and if I do not speak up about them from the pulpit, when will we we speak about the hidden sins inside the American church? Okay, so now we have covered Gomer, part of this, the Gomer's part of the story. We'll need to understand uh, the name of and her Hosea's a name of her and Hosea's children because each have a role to play in the overall understanding of God's redemptive love for Israel and for us in our church. Starting with the first son of Homer, that is now the celebrity name for Hosea and Gomer that I'm giving them, is Jezreel. Now because so, uh, now beyond sounding like a sweet name, it actually wasn't. In fact, as you read the scripture this morning, the reasoning behind it is I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will destroy the kingdom of the house of Israel. And we are expecting our, our second childhood, Candace and I. And it seems that they put a lot, God puts a lot more thought into these names than my wife and I currently have. Jezreel, interpreted through the Hebrew, means he will scatter, similar to someone who scatters the chaff or discards of grain. It is the sorting of grain, the scattering of grain. Also, it's important to note how close Jezreel phonetically sounds like Israel. This is not an accident. God is being heavy-handed in how Israel has been bathed in blood through the ascendancies of different kings of Israel. Look through 2 Kings 15. Right after the death of Jeroboam, which is the timeline that we set at the very beginning of this chapter when God is speaking, it is just constant assassination after assassination. Israel's desire for a ruling king and desiring for military might, this is why God says that he will break Israel's bow that will be broken in the valley, has caused there to be bloodshed after bloodshed. And God is saying that the first son will be named Jezreel as a sign of all of this. Desire to be in power, desire to be a military force, turning our eye to bloodshed as long as it's done in the uh, and done in a name that says our ends justify our means. Does this sound familiar at all? How has the American church been complacent in this? How have we turned a blind eye or been a silent voice in our own desires to be in power? How have we turned a blind eye or been a silent voice in our own desires? to use force to achieve our own goals. How have we turned a blind eye or have been a silent voice as blood was shed in the name of the church? We have turned an infinite justice and manipulated it into a finite, broken, and and ultimately limited version of injustice. I'm not out here to say that American church has to be powerless, nor am I out here to say the American church cannot be involved in the military. What I am saying is that we need to be open with who we are and able to explain on a firm sound foundation of the gospel on whatever stance we take. We cannot make moves in the dark if we are called to live in the light. We cannot live silently and claim that we are advocates for justice as God has called us to be advocates for justice. Also, the meaning of this spreading of the chaff, which we used for Jezreel, should also trigger something in your brain. A shout out to John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 5 through 12. People of Jerusalem throughout Judea and all around the Jordan River came to him. As they confessed their sins, he baptized in the Jordan River. Many Pharisees and Sadducees came to be baptized by John and he said to them, you children of snakes who warned you to escape from the angry judgment that is coming soon. Produce fruit that shows that you have changed your hearts and your lives and don't even think Think about saying to yourself, Abraham was our father. I tell you that God is able to raise up Abraham's children from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be chopped down and tossed into the fire. I baptize with water of those who have changed your hearts and lives. The one who is coming after me is stronger than I am. I'm not even worried to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The shovel he uses to shift the wheat from the husk is in his hands. He will clean out his threshing area and bring wheat into the barn. He will burn the husk with fire that can't be put out. That whole reference to husk and wheat is reference to chaff, which is a reference to what God is taking here in um, Hosea when he names something Jezreel. This is all connected. John the Baptist is actually moving a statement of his criticism of the Pharisees is rooted in this idea that starts here in Hosea with Jezreel and how God is judging them. Okay, back to Hosea. Homer, remember celebrity name, Gomer Hosea, I think I'm pretty funny, are going to have a daughter and they name her Lo ruhamah which actually is translated as to no compassion. Once again, the Lord is going all out and naming these children. And actually, the Lord is getting a little bit more direct in this situation uh, when choosing the name, because Jezreel took a little bit of interpretation. Uh, Rahama does not. God seems to declare that he is done with the southern kingdom of Israel, which he refers to as Israel, and will show compassion to the northern kingdom of Israel called Judah. God will have compassion on them and save them, but makes the declaration that this salvation will not come by military might, but rather that God has another plan in which he plans to show compassion. I really wanted to highlight this real quick. God is highlighting that he believes the That God is highlighting that most people, his followers, believed the only way for northern and southern kingdoms of Israel were to be united would be by having a war. And then whoever won the war be the victor. And what God is saying is there are other ways to unite people beyond the use of force and submission. This is an important narrative to remember, especially when you hear a lot of people talking about Old Testament God versus this new, different New Testament God. In short of, in this, uh, as someone different from this New Testament God, in this short naming of Homer's daughter, God is revealing his character. It is not just a God of violence. He is saying there is unification that can happen without Violence and military action. So, after Gomer was done nursing Lo Rahama, they also have a third and final son they named Lo Amin, which is interpreted as not my people. God, once again, does not pull the punch or leave anything up to interpretation. God is saying that you are not my people and I am not your God. I'm going to open up with a little Jerry interpretation here noting that I'm not a biblical scholar that has studied this deeply, but when I was reading it, I felt this and kind of come to my mind. When I'm reading this, I hear, you are not my people because you are not acting like my people. This is is not a blanket condemnation of Israel, but rather speaking that their current actions do not reflect or align with who God is. God is kind of saying, It's pretty obvious to me that I'm not your God because look at how you're acting. You're not my people because you're not acting like my people. I wanted to bring this up because I also kind of believe that we tend to act like this sometimes. We interpret things as like this blank statement that's supposed to be implied indefinitely. We like to write people off saying that you are not my kin and you never will be. We make infinite decisions even though once again, We're finite, limited people. And then at the end of chapter 1, it ends in a very interesting way. It seems that God is on a path of harshing Israel, but then all of a sudden God brings around redemption. God tells Hosea to remind Israel that God will reunite everyone and bring about justice that justice ultimately belongs to the Lord, and that Jezreel will rejoice because God will bring about this justice, that God's promise to grow his people has not been forgotten, and that he's still watching over God's people. As I said this, the series of this uh, the series title is The Prophet and the Prostitute or How I Came to Love the American Church Again because I see so many parallels in between what God is speaking out against Israel to how the American church is today. But even amidst condemnation for the actions of our past, both as individuals and as the American church, God still keeps his promise. God is still growing us to watching over us and his desires to unite us. God is still pushing us towards rejoicing in divine justice and not relying on our own limited versions of what justice is. God is still working on us because God is keeping God's promises. And I feel like one of the things that I was reading through Hosea was the line that I should too. I should commit to the American church in all of her flaws. I should commit to calling out our past, our own limited interpretations of false justice, our own desires for power and use of force. I should commit to these things because God is committed to do that for me and for her as the church as well. And if I'm called to know the church in this intimacy that God talks about, I must be I must commit to a level of trust and honesty that brings about that intimacy. Now, some of you may have recognized the title of this sermon from a lyric from a popular Christian artist and now a critic of the church, Derek Webb. He, uh, quite, he caused quite a controversy when he released his solo album breaking away from the band Cadman's call called She Shall and Must Go Free. On the album he had a song called Wedding Dress where the chorus goes Because I am a whore, I do confess. I put you on like a wedding dress. I ran down the aisle, ran down the aisle. I'm a prodigal with no way home. I put you on like a ring of gold. And I run down the aisle, I run down the aisle. I will make reference to this album, She Shall and Must Go Free, multiple times throughout this series. So I recommend you become familiar with it. But I also wanted to highlight this song at the beginning. We as the American church sometimes take Christ's act of salvation for granted and just put them on whenever we want like a wedding dress and run down the aisle because we know that God will forgive us. And that is true. God will and does forgive us. But I do believe the same reason why Hosea is told to marry Gomer and be a prophet to Israel is to remind them we should not enter into these things lightly and carelessly. We should be intentional and committed We should be ready for accountability and offer ourselves to criticism. We should try with all that we are to obey and listen and not to use a cheap version of grace. Also, hear me, I'm not trying to shame us into believing who God is, just as Hosea did not shame Gomer. Rather, I'm trying to appeal to a love so pure that even in the face of wrongdoing, there is no shame. I want to say that again because I think that this is also very, very important for us to hear. I'm trying to appeal to a love so pure or so divine that even in the face of wrongdoing, there is no shame. That even in the face of my wrongdoing, there is no shame because of how God loves me, how God loves you, how God loves us, and how God loves the church. Without shame, God loves us because He has known us. He continues to know us, and He knows what we will do, what we will be, and who we are in the process of becoming. So as we continue in our story of Hosea, as God looked to Israel in the midst of its muck and mire, it saw something worth sending Christ for. We must find that as an encouragement that even among our own muck and mire, God still sees fit to send Christ for us. And in that, church, I find peace, hope, joy, and love. Be blessed, my friends, and please, Remember to wash your hands.